Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Rishi Bhargava, co-founder of Dscope, and we'll be talking about authentication and identity management. Rishi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have our conversation. And, you know, I was digging into your background in, in preparation for this, and it seems like you've pretty much grown up in startups and in security, you know, everything from McAfee to Apollo Networks to co-founding Demisto and now Dscope. What has kind of like kept you actually interested, engaged in this space or the, you know, in and around security products for the bulk of your career? That's an interesting question. And you're right that pretty much, I think other than my first internship out of college or in third year of college and one job, which is like first one in the year, half a million security. Um, I think what, what really interests me in security, and I have actually thought about it, is, is the fact that this is probably the only space where when you're building products, you're not only competing against other companies building product, but you're also competing against an adversary. So it's, it's, like, it's like you have to be constantly innovating. You have to be constantly thinking about what's next. So it keeps you on your toes for sure. I think that's, that's exciting, right? I mean, I, I think even in my first security company, uh, Solid Core Systems, which I did, which was acquired by McAfee. And yes, I pretty much, no matter what I joined, I got acquired within a few years, including even McAfee when I was there. And McAfee says, I'll be here. You know, I got acquired by Intel, but uh, I was pointing out on startups, that's the other part, right? I mean, in a startup world, you have to kind of constantly think about what's next. How can I reinvent the stuff that we are working on? So that's, that's I think, what has uh, kept me going uh, in the security startup world. Yeah, like startups weren't, you know, high risk, thrilling enough for you. You need to throw in the fact that people are actually trying to like break your system and take it down as well as on top of that. And I think that's a really good point. Like if you're building, I don't know, like an e-commerce product or something like that, sure, you have to, you know, uh, prioritize security and make sure people, you know, a bad actor can't get in or something like that. But it's not at the same sort of level as like people might be actively trying to, you know, break the thing that you're building and trying to fix. Yeah, and I think it's also the, I think, especially when you're building a security product, people are trying to break into your product, but then they are also breaking into your customer's environment and you are continuously protecting uh, the customer's environment as well. So it's it's a, it's fun. I think you wake up excited every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like uh, being on a, the, the front of a roller coaster every day. Um, yeah. And how has security changed throughout your career, though? Yeah, I think that's actually, I mean, um, what I have seen is it's very interesting, right? Security, in some senses, has always lagged the technolo- technology advances, right? I mean, if I look at my first security job, 2003, uh, at that point of time, basically, it was all about laptops, right? I mean, so laptops were becoming popular. People were moving away from uh call it the mainframes or call it the desktops and moving into laptops. And the whole security movement was around BYOD. What if employees bring in their own laptops into the work environment? How should the laptops be locked down? Uh, Then came mobile devices. So then the next set of thing was how do you secure your mobile devices, Android, iOS, the whole, I remember set of mobile security products that came around and then the controls that 
um, app stores had to put in on all these devices. So that was the mobile security phase, which basically trailed the mobile devices. Then came cloud. And then there was this cloud security. Uh, and these days, again, now it's talking on the privacy podcast. Now it's all about privacy because that has become, and the data has become a big concern. So the data security and privacy has become a big deal. So I think I would say the security I see as evolving as your technology stack or the new technology changes and the new trends with AI now will tend to more to say is how do you protect AI models? So that's, that's I think, one big thing, which is security is evolving based on what is the new frontier in technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like every time there's like a paradigm shift in terms of how like consumers are interacting with technology or people are building products, then security also needs to sort of like move with that paradigm shift and figure out like what's the new types of tools that we need to adapt because you can't just wholesale apply the thing like, you know, going back to desktop yeah. to mobile okay. that worked in desktop to to the mobile era, to the cloud era and so forth. Yeah. You know, this is something I've talked a lot about when it comes to like dev tools as well. You see these shifts like when we went from uh, you know, building desktop applications to web-based applications or to mobile applications, new tooling had to be developed to actually be able to do that in the right way. And it was like the, you know, the companies that were able to adapt to those new eras that left the kind of old guard behind. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think the other part of this, leaving the old guard behind and how technology evolves, I think the other aspect why security needs to be redone pretty much for every paradigm shift is the end user experience. And I'll maybe we'll touch upon more on some of these topics because you you almost like, I think we are getting to a point where you want the security and privacy aspect to be as hidden from the user of the technology as you can while still keeping them secure. So you need to keep them secure, but don't put these big barriers in front of them to to affect business or to affect conversion rates or whatever they may be. Do you think there's been a, a sh- uh, like a shift in consumer expectation when it comes to products is that also helps like motivate that is, you know, I want things to be secure, but I don't want to have to deal with it myself. Yeah. I think the, it's very interesting uh, that the two things I'm seeing, and we, we see this a lot in our DScope engagement uh, with our customers and then how their end users behave with their, with their products is one is, I think there's clear awareness that, uh, the user experience needs to be the best. You cannot sacrifice user experience in the name of security, uh, especially in the consumer world. In the B2B or enterprise world, you can still do that, but I think you can do that because you can force your employees to do whatever in some senses, right? I mean, the IT and security teams can put in some controls. Uh, but even in those worlds, I think there is clear recognition by CIOs and CISOs that when you hire employees these days, uh, when you hire younger, fresh out of college employees, they are growing up to the mindset of ease of use, information available to them on their mobile devices at any time. And that paradigm is being brought into the workspace as well. So both on the consumer and B2B side, there's this heightened awareness experience needs to be the best at the same time privacy is top of mind i mean people absolutely are aware they want to expect that their data is not stolen they they are becoming more and more aware on all of the online challenges 
So I think what, what I would say is like the expectation by the end consumer is like, of course, if you are providing me service, you're protecting my data. But at the same time, you cannot rely on me to build or jump through hoops to get that security uh, taken care of. And I think some of the companies like I will kind of an obvious example is I think Apple has led that path very, very well to hide the complexity, but still secure the user, at least in certain aspects of device security. Yeah, and I think they've done a, a really good job of also like using their um, focus on security and privacy as a like, product differentiator as well. So they're actually turning those things into something that actually is like an ROI driver because they recognize that consumers care about this. And if we do this right, we can actually totally. grow our business rather than seeing it as like a barrier to innovation or something that like stops us from you know creating more revenue or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think that there is this you know, shift that's been happening in terms of like, I think we're sort of moving past the days when even in like an enterprise tool, you could be like, well, people will figure it out. You know, it's the same thing like in the dev tools as well as like engine, you know, they'll figure it out. Like even if it's a terrible experience, but like companies have been able to come along and actually like disrupt whole industries by creating consumer grade UX, but in a business product. And I think the same thing probably, you know, happen, it happens more and more in the security tools market, because if you make things like complicated, sure, like you could force employees to do something, but you're more likely, I think, to get human error or people who are like under a time crunch right. that are looking for ways to like move around something because it's like, it feels like it's a barrier to them being able to do their job. And that leads to all kinds of potential problems for a company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's super clear that these days, uh, the user experience and the feedback from your end users is being considered when choosing the product. I have seen many instances where a new product comes in, easy to deploy, easy to use, will completely come in and replace an existing incumbent, right? Uh, so I think uh, definitely that is, that is a big uh, focus as uh, companies are building product and as they're driving new uh, innovations. Absolutely. So I want to start to shift to talk a little bit about authentic authentication identity. So according to the Verizon Data Beach breach report, something like 80% of breaches relate to password theft or identity. Like, why is this still a problem? Like, like, it, like passwords have been around for like 60 years, and it doesn't feel like we're getting better at actually making them secure. It feels like, we, if anything, we're getting worse. So, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the whole existence of password and the security challenges there. In fact, not just security challenges, I think the user experience challenges there have been around, people have dealt with it, and they've continued. I mean, I think if I look at the whole life cycle there, it's not that things have not moved. Uh, the password stayed in existence, uh, but they've gone through few iterations and there have been innovations that came in to rather than replace the password, improve the experience of password on the consumer side. So what do I mean by that? So I would, so if you go back 15 years, people had passwords, then the company said, hey, for security reasons, we want stronger passwords because passwords could be guessed. Now the fundamental problem with this whole premise of need strong password is the opposing forces, right? The, if the password is not strong, the attacker can guess it. But if the password is strong, 
consumers will reuse the password because they cannot remember strong passwords and a lot of those passwords. So this tension between these two tends to drive behavior that people started to enforce strong passwords and the consumer started to reuse passwords. Now, if the one of the services is breached, then guess what? You have a problem and that stolen passwords could be used to break into other services. Now, this problem has existed. Here come around the password managers, which are promising amazing user experience, log in with different passwords. Every password is same on different websites. Uh, every, every password is different on different websites. And I'm a big user of password manager. And that's fantastic, right? So one, it gives me comfort that if one of the website is compromised, and by the way, on an average, I find I get a notification that one website is breached every month. And that password is kind of assume it's gone, it's out there, it's public. So they have stuck around. Why have they stuck around? I think I would put muscle memory. People know how to do it. They do it. Also, I think it's kind of the, uh, the muscle memory or the inertia on the developer side. If you're building an application today, there's no reason to build it with passwords. There's so many ways to identify the user, so many ways to authenticate the user. So you could do that. So that's one is inertia on how they've existed. But second is actually compliance in some cases. Certain industries need to keep the password because the regulation requires them to have strong password. But guess what? I mean, having no password is stronger than having a strong <laughs> password. Um, so I think they have stuck around. Uh, I'm very happy, but I think if you look at the new services being created in the last uh, last two to five years, a lot of them are not using passwords. In fact, I think uh, in, in our internal data of our customers, we, we have a large set of customers, 10,000 plus developers on the platform building. Um, we have seen uh, the use of methods like OAuth, OTP, passkeys actually are way more than the use of passwords in the new app build that's happening. So in the new startup ecosystem and new app that build that's happening, these methods surpass the use of passwords way more. So I, I am looking forward to a passwordless future that way. Yeah, you have no idea how good that makes me feel because there's probably few things that make me more angry than trying to like remember some obscure like strong password while i'm trying to get into an application in in, in like time is of the of the essence or something time like that. Sense, like, yes. nothing that like <laughs> evokes more rage within within me than than that experience and i actually sean that's funny because i have a friend he says that he has a rule i think he remembers passwords for his financial and few applications like his gmail other systems, he always resets the password. He goes in, does a reset password, gets the email, sets something, logs in, and next time he does the same. Yeah, I, I end up doing that a lot with, especially applications I don't, like I'm not in on a regular basis. You know, that that's where the frustration comes in. Is like some application, I don't know, I'm signed up for Marriott's uh, <laughs> benefits program or something like that. And then I have to try to like, there's no way I'm going to remember that password that I set. And, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, you, you essentially on a monthly basis get some sort of notification about a, a password compromise or something like that. I, I've definitely seen an uptick in, I, I've had over the last year or so, 
every once in a while, I get like a check for like $3 in the mail, letting me know that because of some class action lawsuit, my information's out there. And it's like, here's the $3. Uh, uh, sorry, your your social security number and your password's on the dark web. Um, so that is definitely a trend that I've seen. So I want before I jump in, we jump into some of those other, you know, innovations that are happening in the password space, I definitely want to get into that. If we are staying in a password world, just from a user experience standpoint, like let's say that I build an app and I, I roll my own auth, I have the username and password. Like what are some of the problems my users, like the end users actually gonna run into with using a system like them? Yeah, I think the biggest problem, Sean, I, I see is like uh, the whole, anything knowledge based on something you know, right? So password is basically authentication by knowledge that way, right? You're going to have the challenge of how strict do you put in the requirement? Like, do you want length requirements, complexity requirements, um, so special characters, numbers, all of that. And if you add that, you can be rest assured that people are going to reuse. So one experience problem that your users will run into if you roll out your own auth and use passwords is the reset cycle. So I would strongly encourage, like if you, by the way, you should not use passwords, but if you have a reason to use passwords, building the app now, optimize the reset experience and think through what does the reset experience look like for users? Because guess what? I mean, you you said it, right? I mean, you're in time crunch. You need an access to an application. You don't remember the password. How does it reset? Do you send an email with a link and that click of the link lets the user in and then they set the password? Or do you send them a temporary password, which is really bad and they copy paste? So think through that reset experience because that is a user experience thing. Second um, is make sure when you're building the front end of the app, there are, by the way, still sites I find which are actually not compatible with password manager. So if you are building with the password, please make sure your uh, app is compatible with the password manager because guess what? If it is not, then now you are burdening the user to actually copy-paste the password from somewhere else rather than the autofill of the password managers. And th third, I will say is do do offer an alternate. Keep username password, do offer an alternate OAuth or other method and actually run that experiment. See what your users pick. In terms of the reset experience, like what is the what is like optimal for somebody? So the so the right reset experience I strongly recommend is um, have the email as the login. Usually, don't use username. So email as the login. Have a forgot password button right there. I hate it when I have to put a username. Yeah, it's like usernames are real bad. By the way, username has an inherent problem because. Now you're actually encouraging the reuse even again, right? Because if then you need to verify the email separately. So the onboarding experience becomes bad as well. So start with email, forgot password link, send a link, make sure the link is sent as an email, make sure your email reputation domain and other things are good because sometimes they end up in spam. So there are ways to take care of it. So be, be aware of that as a app developer. The link, clicking the link should take them to new password, uh, confirmation and they are in. And now when they said this, log them in because they just went through that verification. At this point of time, there is no reason for you to take them back to the login page and make them log in again because that's another user experience problem and that's not better security-wise, right? 
because you literally went through a secure path of email verification, clicking the link, setting the new password, they should land into your app. So that should be the optimal experience, short circuit. Still, again, you took them a few hops for resetting. You could avoid all of that behavior. Uh, by the way, I mean, at, at this point of time, I have seen, we will talk about strategies to migrate off of passwords. I've seen people, this is essentially a magic link that you did. So why do you need the new set of password? You just did the magic link, let them log in. Yeah. If you, yeah, I mean, if you assume that their email is secure and they only have access to that, then why not a magic link or some sort of, you know, basically two-factor code that they type in? OTP or magic link, whatever you prefer. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Because And now even like um, you know, most uh, like streaming services, when you set them up on your, on your, um, on your TV, because it's kind of pain to basically use a remote to type in a password, they use some form of magic link or you go to a URL and you type in the code or something like that. And then it sort of auto logs you. And imagine if you had to like reset your password from your television every single time and then retype that in, it would be a horrific experience. I have, by the way, ended up doing that. There are some services, I'll not name them here, some popular services which still don't do the code with the phone or don't do the uh, prompt on your uh, device and you have to type in your password as like imagine this like how do I type in my password on my um, remote and I'm going right and the keyboard by the way is not a QWERTY keyboard it's A B C D E F G it's like oh my god <laughs> absolutely so I want to get into some of these alternatives to passwords. So there's like more and more of these becoming mainstream, as you mentioned, like passkeys, magic links, social logins, even biometrics. So let's start with passkey. Like what is a passkey for those that don't really know and sort of how does those systems work? So I think um, the best way to describe passkey is basically um, it's an authentication mechanism which ties the user identity to first either a phone number or an email. So some unique identifier which identifies the user, which can be verified. And then it ties the authentication to a device. So the way to think about it is the old, which has been around for ages now, decades now, the public-private key mechanism. In the passkey world, you generate a public-private key pair. Public key goes to the website private key stays on the user's device, be it a laptop, be it a um, uh, mobile device. And this private key is then secured on the device using biometric. So essentially, what you have is Microsoft, Apple, Google all came together, agreed on a standard, and the standard started with an alliance called FIDO2, uh, FIDO Alliance, uh, on the WebAuthn standard, and basically said, the public-private key pair, we will secure the private key on the device using biometrics, and the authentication is now, user puts in their email or phone number, unlocks the private key on the device using biometric, and that private key then sends a challenge sign with that private key. The server validates it and user is logged in. So essentially, to simplify what the user experience is, user experience is exactly how you unlock your iPhone, exactly how you unlock your Mac or your Windows using Windows Hello or with the password your device. So basically, you are unlocking the secure storage on your device as step one in the experience. 
but that logs you new to in any website. So the experience is beautiful, really, really nice. In fact, we have a demo of this uh, built on passkeys.guru. We'll put in the link in the show notes. Uh, but the user experience is amazing and it's way more secure than any of the auth methods because guess what? You did a multi-factor authentication here. You verified the user with biometric and you verified the device ownership because the key is stored on the device. So now to steal a passkey, you need to somehow get the user, not what they know, but the user because the biometric is with the user and you need to steal the device both. So very secure and amazing user experience. Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview, if you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, you're you're like significantly reducing the like the scale of where the attack surface could, can be because if it's knowledge, then like you can get knowledge from anywhere, right? I, I don't need to be next to you, even if I need to like socially engineer you. I can uh, you know have a conversation with you. By the way, what is your mother's maiden name? You know, like <laughs> like we can you know leak that into the conversation. But if I need to be like physically next to you, then you know I need to be physically next to you. Steal your phone. You know, maybe uh, take a finger with me. Like th that's a much more challenging system. Yeah. In fact, even like you can fish OTP, right? People think, hey, phone OTPs and they're good, but they the phishing OTP is not that hard. People get on the phone, convince you, says, hey, we just sent you the OTP, send it to me. But by the way, there is no way to send a passkey. Like the user never sees the passkey. So even if you trick the user, there is no way to get the passkey. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, SMS is inherently uh, insecure system, even outside of the social engineering aspect people can do, uh, you know, SIM swapping and all kinds of different things. The In terms of um, the the private key, let's say I'm using my phone in this case, where is the private key actually stored on the phone? Like, how is that secured? So so I think that's, that's an excellent question. I think it gets into some of the technical details here, uh, Sean. So the private key is stored actually in uh, usually hardware, secure hardware um, system. So there's usually most of the devices, whether it's laptops and phones, they have like Intel has this whole secure enclave, uh, Apple chips have its own uh, hardware secure storage, which can only be unlocked with biometric. So they are hardware uh, places and the memory where the private key is stored. Uh, similar to, I think, in the in the Mac world, the whole keychain concept and where they are stored and encrypted on the device. So very, very secure. In fact, I think uh, there have been no publicly known attacks to access those part of memories and um, multiple different layers of security have been put into place. So that's that's where the private key is stored. And the only way to get private key is to actually pro provide biometrics. Biometrics are actually also communicated over the hardware layer. So very, very secure channel overall. Yeah, and we actually did an episode um, 
on uh, enclaves with uh, Arvind Raghu from AWS. So for anybody that's interested in kind of diving into that topic, uh, I, I recommend checking out that up. So maybe we'll link it in the show notes. And then in terms of what if I like upgrade my phone or someone like steals my phone, like how, how do I then yeah. transfer these pass cases? Like, do I have to set all this stuff up again? Yeah, so I think there's, uh, that's, that's an area where uh, I would still say a few, few advancements happening. So one is uh, last year, actually, Google, Apple, and Microsoft, again, enhanced the standard to say they will be syncing of the pass keys over the cloud. It's never stored in the cloud, but the sync can happen over the cloud, uh, of course, encrypted in transit. So uh, there are ways where the uh, pass key could be on multiple devices. So your login experience from your laptop and your phone is not broken. If you set it up on your mobile, you can still log in from your uh, laptop, uh, all of those experiences. Um, but if you completely did not have any sync set up, did not have any backup set up, yes, in that case, uh, you have to reset it. But I think, think of it this way. I, I consider you changing or losing your phone uh, once every five, 10 years experience. Changing phone is common, but in changing, you are easily able to migrate the pass keys for sure. That migration happens very seamlessly. But if you lost it, it's similar to resetting a password. It's similar to password managers. By the way, one of the other things which we didn't touch upon yet, most of the password managers are also now supporting pass keys. So if you're already using or your customers are already using password managers, the pass keys could be managed in password managers, which are then, of course, encrypted and synced and could be recovered very easily. So I think from that perspective, it's very similar from a storage, uh, sorry, from migration and reset pass perspective. But then the benefits of security and user experience is super high because you cannot even tell it to somebody. Um, so so that, that's how it recovers. But I would say, I think I will, I feel there's some work needs to happen on Google, Apple, and Microsoft part for these recovery mechanisms that they're getting better over time. Google rolled out passkeys last year Amazing, right? By the way, on your Google account, you can set up pass keys. I love it. I'm, I have not been prompted for my phone OTP even when I log in from new devices in the last uh, three, four months since I set up pass keys and Google rolled out pass keys. So excellent, excellent experience. And then what about in terms of like single sign-on? Is that another trend that you're seeing people sort of move more towards where essentially like... I don't want to have to build all these systems or integrate like a passkey system or something like that. I can totally. sort of offload that to, you know, people using Google, you know, Meta, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, mentioned uh, earlier, we, we track a ton of stats on login methods used by apps that are being built. Social login is number one among all of this. Uh, I think depends on your application, depends on your user, depends on how do you want the user to behave. In some cases, there is obviously a reason to rely on a social login. Let's say you're building an app, which is a retail app, shopping app, something like that. It makes perfect sense to actually do it a login with Meta. Why? Because you're going to probably use that 
OAuth token to post on users' behalf or share with your friends, etc. So there are some applications which are anyways more inclined to do login with Google, login with Meta, login with LinkedIn, login with GitHub. So those are the number one methods, by the way. In fact, I think more and more app developers are saying, that's the best method. If my user is a developer, login with GitHub makes more sense. Everybody has a GitHub account. So we are seeing incredible high use of that. And in those scenarios, you could use passkeys as a second factor uh, in case you uh, see risky device, new device, et cetera. Uh, in other cases, when uh, we have seen people don't use social logins, that is when they actually rely on a combination of OTP for phone verification followed by a passkey because you do need to verify the phone even for a passkey or verify the email for a passkey. So those are the other set of combinations. But yes, social logins are becoming more popular. They are actually uh, the leading method in in our data that we have collected so far. So I, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about Dscope. So there's, you know, clearly there's there's been existing, you know, products in the identity authentication space, but like what sort of motivated you to, to found the company and what was it that you felt it was a pain point essentially that you felt like other providers were you know adequately satisfying. So yeah, I think I touched upon this, right? I'm a big believer in user experience. One of the things, Sean, I believe, and I, I've said this for a technology to be adopted widely, the reason needs to be either it's lower cost or it's easier to use. I mean, everything else. Like, look at solar panel adoption. It's like, oh, everybody wanted to be green. We started to pull solar panel, but they don't get adopted unless the cost of solar energy is lower than the cost of your regular energy. That's kind of the normal man, right? I mean, it's everybody, eventually the adoption of technology comes down to, is it cheaper, is it easier to use? So number one, developer experience for building passwordless experience and building all user journeys in your product that's what will drive the adoption. So when we started building, we started to think about starting a new company, looked at different spaces, and it became very clear that when it comes to authentication, there were a lot of players. It's a very crowded space. But there is still simplification to be done, work to be done to simplify what does it take to build an auth method into my product. And it's not just the first time integration to make it easy. Is it flexible enough so that I can do more and more and more without having to do a whole lot of work? And that's the core of Dscope. So we basically designed it as a workflow system. So you can come in and say, it's just one screen, drop in social login and your workflow will have two steps, social login step and a screen to click it. And you can integrate in 10 minutes. Like literally we have customers who matter of couple of hours deployed the app live in production with the social login. But now maybe tomorrow you come in and say, hey, I have social login, but I want to do a second factor auth with OTP. How do you do that? You come in, you modify the workflow, you put in a condition that is this a high risk device? And if it is, do a second factor auth. You change the workflow, don't need to change your app, done. That's how easy to add a new auth method. You want to add more complicated geo-based logic. Like if they are logging in from India, do a WhatsApp OTP. If they're logging in from US, use social login. 
change the workflow, drag and drop, you're done. So the whole premise with Dscope is, can we make that developer experience really easy so that they can go innovate and future-proof the authentication? And that's what drove Dscope, and that's what differentiates Dscope from every other auth provider, which is this whole concept of a workflow where you can keep changing it as you grow and keep innovating without having to go redo the app deployment. Yeah, so you're creating essentially like a, a, a like higher level of abstraction from, you know, essentially implementing this. Like one thing to give people like a, a framework with like kind of atomic units to kind of build this stuff, but then you still have to do a bunch of work. Like if I go and I want to, uh, support, you know, different experiences based on geography, then I need to figure out, you know, which geography the person is coming from, write a bunch of business logic to kind of map them to these different, you know, atomic units. If I can just sort of, you know, I don't know, like WYSIWYG that into workflow much, much faster. Yeah, all of all of those logic could be now translated into a user journey, which you designed on the screen. And then what is sort of the, what are you seeing in terms of like adoption? Is it People who are moving from like maybe they you know DIY their own auth system and then they're looking for a new you know something that's like more robust where they're offloading a lot of this experience or are you getting a lot of people who are actually converting from other you know competitors that are you know auth identity providers in the space and see this as something that's you know a better system to help like grow and scale their product. I think the answer is yes to all of the above. I see three different motions. Honestly, there is the good news is I think there's a lot of new build going on as well. Right now, I'm seeing tons of new build, tons of developers, new apps being built. So there's one obvious one where, which is the best provider to choose, which is the easiest, the right cost, because cost matters at that stage. We have really focused on a free forever tier, on a startup program. So that's that's been one segment. Second is they either have a homegrown or some other provider, and they are in this growth phase. They have good revenue coming in, and they now want role-based access control. They want SAML integration. They want risk-based MFA because they are a B2C company and they're starting to see bot traffic. At that stage, they have to make a decision that from the homegrown or internal system, which is one of the existing incumbent, do they migrate off? Do they continue to build on that? And that's a very good hook for us because this is the promise of future proofing. You can move now and then you can start to build on top of that all the time. So that's the second where we are seeing migration. We have migrated from pretty much, I think in the last 10 months of our existence, we have migrated of every authentication provider I've seen from Auth0, Okta to smaller startup players, everybody we have seen migration. And the third I'm seeing is augmentation where they don't replace it. They're continuing to use their auth provider. We have ways to integrate using OIDC, SAML other ways. And these are large companies, like hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. We have seen them augment their authentication and say, I want to add stronger MFA using pass keys or using another auth method, but keep my system because right now is not the time to migrate. So I'm seeing these three different customer profiles. What's the migration process? Like if you're moving from an existing you know, identity auth provider yeah. to Dscope, like how easy is that? It, it uh, depends on how deeply you integrated or let's say, were you thoughtful enough to design it right? Because if you designed it as a user service, which integrates with the third provider, third-party service, then you're only touching this user service. 
uh, it's somewhat easier, by the way, for B2C companies than to than for B2B companies. B2B companies have tenancy, role-based access control. So their identity becomes slightly complex. But we have seen migration anywhere from like a week to four weeks migration cycles. So I would say a couple of sprints from a developer perspective, we have seen migration even in a B2B environment where they had tenancy and role-based and everything else. So clearly you've focused a lot on, you know, developer experience, user experience, and you see that as, you know, a product differentiator for Dscope. But how hard is it to actually design and build a security product that's actually, you know, super easy to use? And what are some of the you know, positive consequences of a great experience? I, I think uh, it is hard. I will say designing something that's simple to use is very hard. Um, but it's not only about the product. It's about thinking of the entire developer experience, uh, documentation, onboarding onto your website, information on your website. If you look at it, I mean, one thing we said was we will make it self-service to the point where they come into our website. There is no even form. There is a sign-up button in most cases where you will just sign in and you are in the product. The documentation is completely open. We measure ourselves, even on our Slack community, we measure ourselves with a very interesting benchmark. It says if somebody asks a question, is there a document to respond to that? Don't answer the question, can I have a document which points to that? And if there is not, why is there not? So, in my opinion, the developer experiences all is not only about the ease of use of the product. It's about the documentation. It's about the website. Are you giving the right information? So if you see our website, even for a young company like ours, it's very verbose. We have everything that a customer would ask. Want to give them the information and same with documentation. So that's, that's kind of the design. The positive consequences, I think, Sean, incredible stories where I have people didn't talk to us came in, developed the whole thing, and then talked to us, says, hey, we want to upgrade to the pro tier. Or we learn about it, they launched, and I have 1,000 MAUs suddenly one fine day because they onboarded thousands of users onto the platform. So uh, people are building this on their own. They go deploy this on their own. So I feel uh, our G2 reviews are talking about our experience all the time. So that's kind of the positive impact. And I think this helps us get into that ecosystem of younger companies, which, I mean, by the way, it's not that the, those companies don't talk to us. I mean, the developers come back and give us feedback. In fact, I see contributions going into our SDK. It says, hey, amazing product, but here is something I want to improve. Here's the con like pull request. And that's very, very, very satisfying when such a thing happens. Yeah, absolutely. I think most like companies sort of underestimate how hard it is to actually create like a really, really great self-serve experience. Like most API-based products, developer tools and stuff like that, they kind of assume that people can, you know, under 15 minutes can essentially, you know, sign up, not talk to anybody, not have to like dig deep into like documentation, be up and running and make their first you know, API call or whatever it is for the tool. But if you, in, in actual like tests, like almost every single company fails at that. Like most people like actually end up giving up because they aren't able to hit that. And there's sort of this 
holy grail from Ori Peckelman in the developer experience space of like the 333 rule of uh, essentially being able to like understand a product in three minutes, make your, you know, make your first uh, API call and, 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 and such, such and time and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And, but, and everybody thinks that they're at that level, but like most companies are not even close to reaching that level. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. I, I think, Sean, it's not easy. And I would not say our work is done, right? I mean, we continuously internally challenge ourselves to get better there. I think my my big learning is, uh, one, think of more than product. Think of docs and product and the website, right? Learn what the product is in three minutes is a good point. It's like, unless your website is outright clear of what you do, it's very hard. That's one. But two, it's also not about the happy case. I mean, people optimize the happy scenario and the happy path. And most companies get that right. What they don't get right is the unhappy scenario. It's like if somebody went off the trail, did not finish your wizard and clicked somewhere else. Now they're lost. What do you do then? Yeah, absolutely. So as we start to you know wrap up, I want to look towards sort of the future. What do you think the future of authentication is? Like, What's your prediction for when something like passwords will actually go away? I think um, it's it's funny. It's like things take longer and cost more is the is the normal philosophy. I I do agree, uh, but I'm a eternal optimist. I think, uh, in my opinion, we are starting to see the new apps use password less and less. So if you consider a five to seven year app life cycle where new applications will start to dominate and the old applications go away, you'll start to see a good pivotal shift. Seven years from now, that majority of the apps uh, are some sort of a passwordless experience. Uh, social logins are dominating heavily right now, if you think about it. And I think uh, I'm starting to see most of the apps that even support passwords still support, starting to support social logins in addition. Um, so I would say seven years, but when will they go away? I think go away is a very long time horizon. We have seen long tail for everything. Um, I think what needs to be done is one, more awareness, which is how do other methods work better? Why are they more secure? And then I think the last, the long pole will be here, which is regulation. There are still regulations requiring they don't require passwords, but the point is if the regulation requires strong password, if I'm building an app, I need to comply with that. Now I have a decision to make. Do I fight that by saying I have no password, which is strong password, or do I just have password, which is a strong password? And most of the most of the B2B app developers will try to say, that I don't want to fight this. If an oil and natural gas company wants strong passwords, let me give them passwords. Do you think that this this the standard will become the passkey method i think passkeys are seeing adoption so passkeys will see strong adoption i i'm a believer i think a combination of some sort of a one time authentication we call it one time in time in our internal lingo whether it's a magic link and otp those are one time um so combination of one time social login and passkeys will prevail. I'm not sure that passkeys will primarily become the number one authentication method. I think currently the trend is social logins are leading. 
but i think a combination of social login and passkey probably will be where we'll end up that's my prediction or a combination of one time auth method of some sort and passkey yeah, yeah i mean you could have a combination of essentially the the social login at the app level but then the actual provider of the social login like the the googles the metas of the world use passkey so is there anything else you'd like to share or add before we um, say our goodbyes? No, I think to summarize, I think, Sean, from my perspective, what really, if you're building a new app now, or if you have an app and you do auth, uh, the thing to think about is user experience for your end users, developer experience for your own developers, and the side effect of security, because we started this podcast with 80% of breaches by DBIR but because of passwords, all these three need to be thought through together when you're deciding on. You sacrifice or one of these three pillars, you're not going to be in a good state. So end user experience, developer experience, and security all need to be thought through when you're making choices on the auth method. Yeah, you want to be in the intersection of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Well, Rishi, I want to thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. You gave me hope for the future that someday that I won't have to remember quite so many passwords. So I'm excited for that future. But uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. And you know, I'd love to have you back down the road. Absolutely, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.